My name is Lawrence Rosenberg, and this is the Alpha Human Podcast. Our guest today is Jeremiah J.P. Donnell. J.P. is a former U.S. Navy SEAL who spent nearly a decade in the SEAL teams with three combat deployments. J.P. served as point man, machine gunner, and lead sniper for Delta Platoon, where he worked closely with Task Unit Commander Jocko Willink and Leif Babin during the Battle of Ramadi and was the driving force on many of the combat operations that Jocko and Babin wrote about in their book, Extreme Ownership. JP was also a training instructor at Naval Special Warfare Group One Training Detachment, where he ran special operations, urban combat, and close quarters combat training to better prepare SEAL units for the battlefield. JP is now a leadership instructor and speaker with Echelon Front, where he serves as director of tactical training programs. JP, welcome to the show. I appreciate you having me, brother. How are you? I'm um, fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for doing the podcast. It's, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on this show. You know, I've watched a lot of interviews. Uh, you did a short film that I checked out, and I'm, I'm really interested to get into a lot of your thoughts on the time you spent in the teams, on the time you spent in Ramadi, uh, certainly your, your thoughts uh, and your mindset on being a sniper because it's clearly a very, very specialized high-pressure skill set to be uh, good at, let alone to be considered elite. Uh, and so I'm super excited for this, uh, for this interview. Uh, man, thanks, thanks for doing it. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, let's, let's rock and roll. So let me, let me do this. I want to set the scene. I want to put the audience in the picture so that they can kind of get a sense of what we're dealing with here with respect to your background, what you've been through, what you bring to the table. So here, let me, let me kind of set the, uh, the atmosphere. So you're laying on a rooftop in the summer of 2006 in Ramadi, Iraq. And you're performing a sniper overwatch. And you're watching over a sector to make sure that nobody gets too close to a combat outpost that's being built there. And it's like the middle of the summer and it's 130 plus degrees and you're in full body armor. You have your machine gunner, Mike Monsoor next to you. You have your platoon commander, Seth Stone. He's next to Mike. And you guys are, are drenched in sweat. It's boiling out there. But you're watching intently as these insurgents are probing different areas of the perimeter and they're giving intel to other enemy fighters and they're using kids as human shields so that you don't shoot them. Can you share the rest of that story with this audience? Yeah, um, you know, the unfortunate thing is like it's not this wasn't just one story, you know, I mean, this was. This was a regular thing on our on our deployment to Ramadi, um, and it, it's hard for people to understand that and grasp that because most people want to just kind of put out of their mind that evil exists. Mm -hmm. Most people they feel that if they don't address it, they don't talk about it, they don't acknowledge it, that evil doesn't exist, and it's something that they don't have to worry about. And so when I've talked about these situations on our deployment it's it's hard for most people to like truly grasp that 
an adult would use a kid as a shield so that in hopes that we wouldn't take a shot on them because these guys that we were going up against these guys that we were hunting um, these insurgent fighters that had been causing all this horrible just or they are causing a horrible environment by what they were doing to these innocent families. Um, you know, they, they were also very intelligent. They knew what they were doing. They knew what they could push because of rules of engagement that we follow. You know, we have rules in war that we follow against horrible human beings that have no rules. They can do whatever they want because there's no consequences for their actions. And so we, right. We have morals, we have ethics, we have values. We don't just shoot people to shoot people. We, it's not what we do. And, and so they have to be acting within certain rules of engagement for us to be able to shoot them. And they knew that because of the battle space and because of the colonel that we were working under had changed up the rules of engagement uh, because these enemy fighters would be probing, gaining intel and they would be communicating for to help set up coordinated attacks on these combat outposts and on our sniper overwatches. So within the rules of engagement, if somebody was doing that and if they were using binos and radioing in, we were authorized to engage them. You know, okay. right? And you know, they didn't have to be shooting at somebody, but if they were using binos, if they were using radios to communicate that, they were coordinating attacks on uh, Iraqi soldiers, on US service members, on innocent people. And so we would be authorized within our rules of engagement uh, to engage them. And uh, they quickly caught on to that. And so what they right. would do is they would do it in crowds. They would use a bunch of people. They'd put women in front of them. They would hold up kids, you know, and, 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 and like hold them in front of their chest. They would grab kids that would be kicking and screaming and crying, not wanting to be taken by these evil people, knowing that if they're mostly covered up by a child, they're probably not going to be shot at. And right. I mean, it was horrible. It was, it's, it's disgusting. And I, I think about that and it's, I mean, that's one of those things I don't think about often because I, I mean, I, obviously I love children and children are innocent and they're pure and these evil people, um, I don't even like calling them people, these evil, you know, right. beings, um, were, we would do things that would ruin these Iraqi children and Iraqi families lives. Um, they would come in and they could, they would control their houses. They would come in and because Iraq, every Iraqi family was authorized to have an AK 47. Um, and you know, to be able to protect themselves and protect their home. And these Iraqi insurgents, uh, I'm sorry, these insurgents would come into the Iraqi homes and they would tell them, Hey, you're going to let us use your house to ambush the Americans and the Iraqi soldiers. We're going to use your AK. And they would, you know, be up on a rooftop They'd shoot. They'd come out from the alleyway or the, you know, the gate to the courtyard and they would shoot and ambush. Right? And then they, they would ditch the weapon and they would kind of hang out there. And then they would come out like nothing was going on because they wouldn't have the weapon anymore. And then we'd go to that house and, you know, those Iraqi families were put in horrible situations to where if they didn't comply with these insurgent fighters, the insurgent fighters would come back and they would rape, torture, and murder these families. And that's what, yeah, I know. And it, it's even, it's horrible to even think that that was happening. Right. But, but here's the deal. These insurgent fighters, Lawrence, had complete control of Ramadi. There was four to 5,000 of them estimated in the Al-Anbar province at that time. 
and it was to the point that they had complete con control. They were flying their flag over the Capitol building. Really? Yes. And so that's, I, I, I try to share that with people so that they understand like it's, it wasn't just a few of them and people were complying. I mean, we're talking thousands of evil people coming in and dictating whatever they wanted to do. And it was such a bad place that when we were heading over there, uh, an intelligence officer from the Marine Corps um, was, was giving this brief and this brief ended up being leaked and, and the, this quote was leaked to the press. It said, uh, the political and social situation has deteriorated to the point that US and Iraqi troops are no longer capable of militarily defeating the insurgency in Al-Anbar. And the Marine Corps, our military, other government, you know, agencies, other military units said that Ramadi was all but lost. It was an unwinnable situation. Oh, all right. Okay. So, uh, all right. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to stop you there. Hold, hold on there. Cause that is, that really sets the scene that sets the stage because that's what you were walking into on. I Day think one. it was your second deployment. So yeah, this was my second deployment. And that's, uh, what you, yeah. I had turned 23 the month before we deployed over there. And okay. I was put in a position of leadership when we got over there as our lead sniper, our, our point man, machine gunner. Um, yeah, it was okay. It was a lot. <laughs> all right. So that all right. So that sets the scene. Thank, thank you for sharing some of that with us. So, all right. Now what I want to do is let's rewind a bit and kind of uh, get a sense of, you know, how did you get there? How, how did you go from because now you. So you're going to be 23. You're going to go to Ramadi. It's going to be your second deployment. What was, you know, what was going on, you know, five, six years before that? What was, you know, what led you to join the Navy? What led you to become a SEAL? You know, tell us your journey to getting to that point. Um, you know, I wanted to be a Navy SEAL ever since I was a, I was a little boy. I used to play Navy SEALs. I was infatuated with the military. Um, you know, I used to play Navy SEALs, used to play Army Rangers, used to play Marine Corps, used to play Air Force Pararescue. Like that's all I wanted to do. And I had, you know, an uncle that was a PJ, a pararescue in the Air Force. Okay. And he worked with a lot of SEAL teams. And so he would tell me stories about that. My brother and I watched a documentary on the SEAL teams when we were younger. And, you know, we had neighbors that were old Vietnam vets that we would talk to that would share with us stories and you know, I was reading, you know, field survival manuals and handbooks when I was a little kid. Like, that's what I would do for fun is, wow. you know, learn how to make a ghillie suit and all these other things. So it was something that was in me. My grandparents both served in World War II. Um, and then one of them stayed in and went, it was in the Korean War, was in Vietnam War, and, you know, just a whole life of service. And so I, you know, and then my aunts and uncles were in the military as I was getting older. So that's, you know, people that I had looked up to and respected were serving in the military. And okay. I, I wanted to do that. It, it seemed like something that God had made me to do because I would do stuff naturally that most kids don't understand how to do, you know, okay. it, it just like building an urban hide site. I knew how to do that before I was ever taught how to do that in the military. It was just natural for me, if I was building an urban hide site in a building, I used to do that. I used to practice this in my grandparents' barn okay. and I would open up the window, the windows, and I would take off the screen, but slightly move it over till the screen wasn't missing. And then I would be deep into the room in the shadows, 
and I would put stuff up there to cast a shadow so that I could be laying in my grandparents' barn in the shadow, but have a clear visibility and line of sight of stuff that was moving in front of me. And I would practice doing stuff like that. I don't know how I learned how to do that, but these are things that I just kind of knew to do. And so as I got older, my, you know, I was getting ready to graduate high school. My dad suggested that I went in the military because I didn't really have a clear path after high school. Uh, Didn't want to go to college, not because I think college is bad, but I, I had no clear path and I didn't want to go do something, waste money and time for something I had no clear desire and or path to do. And I think that's the problem. A lot of people go and they're like, well, I, you know, I graduate high school. I got to go to college. That's what right. everybody else does. That's what I should. Well, it's like, why are you going to college? What's the purpose? Why not a trade school? I mean, I think we all learned in this last year that people that were in the trade industries that were very valuable uh, over people that had college degrees with nothing to bring to the table because they just didn't have the life experience yet. And or companies were like, Hey, I, sorry, I can't use what you have to bring to the table. So I, I knew that from an early age is this, you should have some diversity uh, in your skill sets. Mm. My dad was an amazing and still is an amazing chef contractor. My mom was very diverse as well in her skill sets uh, for business accounting, personal training, nutrition, all wow. these things. Right. And so my parents never went without work. We didn't have a lot of money but they never went without work. They could always do something. They always found a way to provide value. And so I learned that at an early age and I just knew that I could provide a good amount of value in the military and it's going to give you some life experience. I mean, no doubt. you know, you get a steady paycheck the first and 15th of every month, 30 days a year of leave, which is paid vacation, okay. medical, dental, vision, all that stuff. And, you know, there's a, a signing bonus with, for college. And I was like, well, if I ever decide I want to go to college, I might have some money for that. And so it was, it was just, it made sense. Um, you know, and plus I went in the recruiting office, had a cast in my hand. I'm a little like 135 year old, I'm sorry, 135 pound, just punk kid with bleak blonde hair, puka shell necklaces <laughs> on. You know, I was, you know, spending half my days out at the river with my friends in my senior year of high school and, you know, walk in the recruiting office and, you know, they're all trying to be hard asses before 9-11 and like, hey, okay. what are you doing in here? And I said, oh, you know, want to join the Navy, become a Navy SEAL. And they all started laughing. And I just remember going, check, okay. And then, you know, one of them told me, he's like, hey, here's a deal, young man. The Navy can't touch you with that cast on your hand. We can't start the process. Like there's mm-hmm. nothing we can do. And the Navy SEAL wannabe recruiter he won't be back until Thursday. So if you want to come back in two days, have at it. And that whole like wannabe, the Navy SEAL wannabe recruiter, like right. man, that, just, that just like pushed my button perfect. And I was like, okay, check. And, <laughs> you know, I just, it just, it pushed me down okay. that path because I was already in my mind and in who, I guess who I was. And that's all I kind of really needed. I needed to be challenged. And so okay. I went home and I told my dad, Hey, I want to join the Navy. I'm going to become a Navy SEAL. My dad was all super excited for me. He's like, that's awesome. That's great. Um, you know, I said, but they won't, the recruiting office won't do anything with me until I have this cast off my hand. Okay. I just gotten the cast on like 11 days previous to this. And my dad was like, okay, Hey, go in the bath, bath, bathroom, start soaking it in a bathtub. So I turned on some warm water. He came in with some tools and we cut my cast off. And two days <laughs> later I went in the recruiting office and I just, I mean, I couldn't even like grip a pen. Like my hand was bad. Like I broke this knuckle, these bones and fractured my wrist. Okay. And so it was pretty serious. Should have kept the cast on for a couple months, but 
not 11 days. And, but it's what I needed. And my dad knew that that's what I needed is I needed to commit and take action because okay. too many times people talk about things that they want to do, but they don't take action. They, right. they wait, they think too long and then the opportunity passes. And, you know, my dad had done that when he was younger he wanted to go in the military and he waited and delayed. And then when he tried to go, when he was older, he wasn't able to. So he, he wanted me to go down that path and uh, that's what got me. And so I went in two days later and I remember I walked in and that older senior chief, like he was sitting in that corner. He looks at me, he like looks down at my hand and I kind of like made sure he knew the cast was gone. I just kind of like lifted my hand up and he right. just nods his head at me and he goes, petty officer Garrett's going to take care of you young man. And that started it. Like that started the process and uh, that summer I worked construction for my dad mm -hmm. and he pushed me physically and mentally to my limits to prepare me for SEAL training. And uh, yeah, that's, that's what happened. So I went in to boot camp. 9-11 happened on my sixth day of boot camp. And so that was, you know, just the nail in the coffin because uh, I already wow. had a contract to try to become a Navy SEAL. Okay. I knew that's what I was going to do no matter what. And then 9-11 happened and... I just told myself there was absolutely no way, there's no way I am not going to make it through this training. That's where I need to be. I, I, I want to go to war. Uh, that's something that's just been in me ever since I was a little kid was just going to war and fighting battles. It's what I wanted to do. And um, I was able to do that. You know, so I went through boot camp, went to San Diego, checked into buds. I was in mm -hmm. class 242, graduated with class 242 went through SQT, which is our SEAL qualification training. It's the advanced training after BUDS before you check into a SEAL team. Okay. Um, checked into SEAL team three, started doing some training, did a workup. We deployed, came back. And then that's when Jocko Willink came in to be our task unit commander. And we formed up task unit bruiser. Okay. All right. That's great. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take you back just a little bit there. Um, so I'm going to quote you from, uh, first of all, there's a, there's a great film that people need to see. It's that short film that was done with, uh, on you. Uh, it's called Elite Sniper, J.P. Donnell, an origin film. And in there, um, you say, SEAL training is designed to weed out the mentally weak, to weed out the immature and to weed out the guys that aren't able to step up and lead. So now, JP, you're, you're 18, mm -hmm. intent on joining the Navy with the goal of becoming a SEAL. But up till that point, what in life prepared you to be mentally strong enough and to have the strength of character and perhaps the maturity necessary to be able to step up and lead when called upon? Um. You know, I would probably have to go back to my early childhood. Like I said, mm -hmm. my grandparents both served in the military. Uh, they're a, a huge part of our lives growing up. We're very close with all of our relatives. And so just hearing stories from my grandparents, um, seeing them work hard. You know, I've, I don't, we don't have any family members that are lazy. Every okay. one of our family members works hard and works smart and, you know, just grinds it out. Like we don't make excuses. We make things happen. You know, okay. and that's something I've always learned from an early age. You can make excuses or you can make things happen. You can't do both. And our family 
our family tree on both sides of my mom and dad and both sides of there as it spreads out, like we just work and we make things happen. And, and so that's something I've always seen and I've always known. Um, and then as you know, I was getting older, my parents, we were very involved in church. And mm-hmm. so I saw that leadership in church and I saw service and I saw, you know, giving back to people. Uh, we were very active with, um, you know, that type of stuff. Uh, when I was in high school, on during spring break, I would go down to Mexico to build houses for the homeless. Like that's what I really? did with the more ministries. Yeah. Through young okay. life. Okay. And so I was very big in young life and that's what we would do. Uh, I grew up doing Royal Rangers, which is Christian boy Scouts. Uh, okay. And so, you know, learned those leadership skills at an early age, uh, learned what it meant to serve and, you know, and, and to truly have a grasp on what other people have and don't have. And, mm you know, just so that you can have a sense of reality in regards to how lucky we have it and how good we have it. And uh, so I just, I, I think I just learned that naturally throughout my life uh, by having family members that were present, family mm-hmm. members that held you accountable and, you know, held you to a higher standard. And, um, you know, we're just, you know, I, I'm very fortunate to have the upraising that I had. Um and then, you know, as sports, growing up doing sports and mm-hmm. ever since I could have a job, I had a job. You know, I was teaching, I, I grew up doing kickboxing. And then when I turned 15 and a half and could have a work permit, I got a work permit and I was working at my gym teaching kickboxing. So martial arts also teaches you leadership. It teaches right. you responsibility. It teaches you accountability, you know, it teaches you standards. And that's what leadership is. When we break down leadership, it's accountability, responsibility, and standards. And so from an early age, I understood accountability. I understood responsibility. And I've always understood that you should always have high standards, that, you know, this whole mindset that you should never settle for being average. You should never settle for second place. You should never settle for just getting by in life. And that's not how we were designed to be. That's not how we were created. Mm. And, you know, and that's always something that's been on my heart, I guess, and upraising. And so that prepared me. And then obviously when you're in the military, guess what? They teach you leadership. They teach you uh, the principles of leadership and how to lead and how to follow and the, the, the balance between the two and why it's important. And then when you're going through buds, they're teaching you that as well. Mm. And, you know, it's real time. In, in instruction on how to lead and how to follow it. When you see a void in leadership, how you better step up. And if you don't see, if you see a void in leadership and you don't step up, then you're failing the team and you're failing right. the organization. And, you know, I quickly realized that leadership is your ability to influence others to do something, not a title, not a, an actual official, like you are a leader. No, that's not a, that's not leadership. Leadership is your ability to influence those around you to accomplish a common goal and objective. And that's why leadership makes the difference in every organization, whether it's a good or bad organization. Mm-hmm. And that's what we saw overseas is when the insurgency was rising and these enemy fighters were gaining more and more control of areas and, and growing their influence and growing their, their brand. Mm-hmm. It's because of leadership. It's because of leadership within that bad organization. And leadership makes a difference in every organization. Wow. Um, So that's, I mean, that, that's interesting because uh, not only did you have the passion and desire uh, to make it uh, 
through training and as a SEAL, but you were also set up throughout your childhood uh, to be able to absorb a lot of the lessons that came later. Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's powerful. I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you another quote, um, that kind of will, uh, give us some insight deeper into some of your, your passion for this country. So quote, I was in my sixth day at boot camp, and I remember the doors to our barracks flung open. And I remember one of the recruits drill commanders came in and he said, our nation's been attacked. Terrorists flew airplanes into the Twin Towers. The base is on lockdown. We're going to war. Now, I was only 18 years old, but I remember I was so pissed off. I wanted to get overseas as fast as possible. And I knew that I had made the right decision. There was no question that I was going to make it through training. I could not get to training fast enough. And every single day, I'd wake up, there was a love for my country, a love, excuse me, I love this country. There is no greater country than the country we live in. So JP, 9-11 was definitely a catalyst for a lot of American citizens to join the military. And a a number of those uh, individuals who are highly motivated also made it into special operations. Mm -hmm. And it seems that a sense of patriotism, whether you serve or not, and a love of America and the American ideal is either woven into you or it's not. It doesn't seem like there's a gray. I, I mean, I'm personally all in on the American dream because my granddad, he was the child of Italian immigrants, and he instilled in me the value of the American ethos and the reason why we are the greatest nation on earth. But can you speak about where your sense of love and passion for America, for the flag, uh, for the principles that made us who we are as Americans. Where, where did that come from for you? And can you tell us what that actually, that love of country actually means for you, that love of, love of the flag, that love of America, that love of the ideal? Um, I mean, that, that came from an early age. I mean, when I, I'm very fortunate that when I was in school, we still did the Pledge of Allegiance, you know? And mm-hmm. so we would start off the day with the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag. And I, I just knew that that was important. And again, going back to my parents and my grandparents and my aunts and uncles, they always instilled into us to have a sense of pride to be an American. And uh, that we had it so much better than other countries. And, you know, hearing stories from my grandparents of what it was like overseas and what war was like and how horrible other areas were and actually paying attention to history in school, you know, mm-hmm. and, and actually listening and learning, you know, and I just, I, I remember my grandparents telling me, if we don't learn from history, we will repeat it. And there's been a lot of things that have happened that we don't want to repeat. So we should mm-hmm. always pay attention to history. And I, you know, I was never like a big history guy, but I just remember that quote at an early age and I at least paid attention. And now that I'm older, I'm like, man, I wish I would have dove into history because, (laughs) you know, it's just, it's, it's so important to understand history so that we don't make those same mistakes. And when you understand history, you understand what you have and you understand what you don't have. And there's a lot of things to be thankful for that you have. There's a lot of things to be thankful that you don't have and that we don't have as a nation. And I think so many people have forgotten 
how lucky we are and forgotten how good we really are as a nation uh, that they have, they've gotten complacent and they've allowed all these other little things to kind of creep in and dilute what it means to be an American, dilute what it means to represent that flag that hangs on the walls throughout my house, that hangs outside of my house. It, the flag that makes me emotional when I see that draped over an American casket. Mm-hmm. Because I've escorted my best friends home, my roommates home with that flag draped over them. And so I understand what it means for somebody to truly sacrifice their life for the love of that flag. Because they know no matter what, them dying overseas was exactly what they wanted in hopes that we could keep at bay the evil and not allow it onto our shores. And people and Americans have gotten complacent Mm. and we don't respect how hard we've worked as a nation to get where we're at. And we have gotten lazy and we've allowed that complacency to creep in to where we don't think that we truly have a good. We don't think that evil exists. We don't think that evil can infiltrate our nation. And when that evil does, at a deeper level, because it already has, but when it does at a deeper level, it's going to ruin everything that we have fought so hard to keep. And unfortunately, it's going to go, if it gets to that point, it's Mm going to take a long time for us to get it back where we need it to be. And I, I just think it's because people forget. And so I've always been very fortunate to have an open mind to what we have and why we have it and what it costs to have our freedom. I mean, you hear it all the time, but freedom is not free. There, it comes with a cost. It comes, you know, it, it requires us being disciplined and holding the line on what we have. And um, you know, I'm very fortunate just to be raised with that. Like I said, church, Royal Rangers, Christian Boy Scouts, understanding what it meant to be a Christian, understanding what it meant to be a man, what it underst- what it meant to be an American, and you know, and and what it meant to lead and mm-hmm. to have a sense of pride in what we have. And so, going in the military, I had that. And, you know, when I was going through buds to become a Navy SEAL, we were at war. We had instructors that were coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan saying, hey, this is what's going on overseas. Here's how things are changing. We need to change our training. You hear about guys getting wounded and, and killed overseas and reading that, right? I remember when the first Navy SEAL was killed in Afghanistan. I remember reading about that and I was mm. you know, not even in training yet and just going, this is a, this is a reality. This is this is my community that I'm going into and, and understanding that so many brave men and women had sacrificed so much before me that it was my duty and my obligation to carry that on and to continue pushing that forward for those that have paved the way for us to be able to do that. And so, you know, 9-11 happened, sense of pride, sense of anger, hatred, you know, fills you. And you got to be careful because you can't allow the anger and hatred to fill your heart. Right. But it's okay to feel it. It's okay to understand it. It's okay to allow it to drive you as long as it's driving your actions in hopes to better who you are, to serve and combat that evil that forced that hatred into you. Uh, But you can't allow hatred to, to stay within you, within you. You can't allow it to be within your heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not what Americans do. That's not what we are. We fight evil. We stand up for the innocent, the weak, the tired. That's what we do. We've right. always done that. And that's what we'll always do. And that's what I'll always do. And that's what my family knows to do. 
we're having a talk with our kids tonight. And, you know, they're, you know, we have twin daughters that'll be nine on Wednesday. And we have okay. a 14 year old boy. He'll be 15 wow. in March. And, you know, of course they hear stuff on the news and on, you know, Aiden's on social media. And so he'll hear stuff, you know, talk with his sisters and, you know, they hear stuff at school and your friends and on the bus ride and everything. And they'll say, Oh, what about this? We're like, don't worry. That's not going to happen. Or, you know, Hey, this is happening. We're like, yeah, it is. And this is why, you know, we allowed our nation to get to this point. And this is what we need to do. And our kids were really worried about something. And they're like, well, what if they make us do that? Mm-hmm. And I said, I can promise you that will never happen because when that happens, you'll see my old past come out. Right. And that's all I'm, all I'm saying. And, you know, it was just, it wasn't to, to put fear into my kid's heart, but to reassure them that I would not allow that to ever happen to them. It will never happen. I will mm-hmm. not allow that to happen to my kids and my family. And so, you know, then they were just very understanding of it. And it was cool because my daughter's like, I'm so proud of you, dad. That's awesome. Thank you. She goes, thank you for being willing to, you know, to fight and stand up for, you know, these rights. And, you know, I think too many people are willing to allow the situation to dictate what they're going to do in their lives. Mm-hmm. And we can't do that. You, you, you can't do that. And, you know, that's, that's not what we do as Americans. That's powerful. That's powerful, JP. Um, I mean, there's, I don't think there's anything better than hearing what you heard from your, uh, your daughter. Um, you know, that's, there's nothing like that. Um, you know, you weren't just a Navy SEAL, which is in and of itself an incredible honor and accomplishment. Um, but beyond that, you were also a sniper, a SEAL sniper. And I'm going to quote you. You say, we're all given instincts of how to do the things that we were meant to do, who we were meant to be. And I truly believe that God's design for me at that point in my life was to be in the SEAL teams and to be an efficient sniper. So, JP, when did you first have the sense that you were meant to become not just a SEAL, but also a sniper? Well, when I was a little kid, I told you I was building urban hide sites, not knowing what an urban hide site was. I knew I was acting like a sniper. Right. Um, because I was actually doing it with my, with my pellet gun with my little sniper pellet gun. Okay. All right. And so I was, I was shooting stuff as a sniper and uh, that's what I want to do as a kid. And then when I was getting in the military and the SEAL teams, I knew they had snipers and I just did research on it. And it was something I was very infatuated with and loved. Um, and which is unique because I never touched an actual gun, like no rifles, no pistols, no shotguns until I was in the military, other than my airsoft. I'm sorry, not my airsoft, but my pellet gun. Right. We didn't have guns growing up. My dad didn't have guns. He didn't like them because my grandfather was all about guns and hunting and shooting. And him and my dad didn't have a very good relationship until he was a lot older. And so that my dad just didn't, you know, that's just not what worked. And so whatever, cool. I get it. Uh, so I didn't touch a gun until I was in boot camp. The first time I shot a pistol was in boot camp. That's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then going through SEAL training, trying to learn how to shoot in the stressful environment of becoming a SEAL, trying to go through training. That was, that was unique. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I had good instructors and I had good 
older guys in my buds class that really helped me on the side of just saying, Hey, you know, here's some fundamentals and blah, 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 blah. Like, you know, some really cool guys in my buds class that helped in addition to the instructors. And then when I got to my first platoon, when I got to SEAL team three and I was in Delta platoon, you know, I just kind of naturally gravitated towards the snipers and I was friends with them and I would ask them about stuff and we would be doing training trips and, you know, they, you know, they would, you know, talk to me about stuff. And I was just asking a lot, a lot, a lot of questions. And uh, we came back from our first deployment and guys were getting like, Hey, all these different schools that you guys are going to go to. And they were talking about sniper school, you know, coming up and Hey, we need this many snipers and boom, boom. And like, before I could even like raise my hand, they're like, no, you're going off. Like, yes. And so I got picked okay. to go to sniper school and it was just cool. And I went to that training I did extremely well. I did very well in that training. Um, and it was just weird. Like some things that guys naturally struggle with, with long range shooting until they're taught. Mm-hmm. I did well with it without it being taught. And so when I was taught how to do things, it just kind of fit into what I was, my skill set. And um, I, I just truly believe that it was like a, um, a thing that God had built me and designed me to be able to do, um, because I was able to do it well. And, uh, obviously I had good instruction. Um, I mean, we have phenomenal gear. We have phenomenal instruction in the SEAL team. Our instructors are, are incredible. Uh, but it was also something that it just clicked. It just made sense to me. Everything about being a sniper made sense to me. And I, um, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> so, okay. So, so when you finally did become a sniper in the teams and, and I mean, tested in battle as a sniper, mm-hmm. was it what you thought it would be all those years fantasizing about it being a kid, you know, just knowing it in your bones, that it was something you wanted to do when you finally were doing it. Mm-hmm. Was it, was it what you thought it would be? Was it what you thought it was? Yeah, it was incredible it's incredible to know that you have a skill set that is needed and that was being used. You know, when we got to Ramadi, what made task unit bruiser, well, there's a lot of things that made us special, Mm -hmm. but one thing was the incredible foresight that our platoon chiefs and our leadership, Jocko, Leif, Seth, and the platoon chiefs had to make sure that we had lots of guys that were qualified to be snipers. It wasn't normal for, mm. for a task unit to have that many snipers. We really? had, oh, no, like not like normally like a platoon might have maybe two or three. Okay. Each platoon had seven to eight guys that were snipers, qualified snipers. And wow. that's just, it's just weird. I'm telling you, that is a God thing. That is 100% a God thing because when we were putting all these guys at the beginning of the workup to go to sniper school, we didn't know we were going to Ramadi. Nobody knew who they, where that's, they were going. That's unbelievable. And then we get picked to go to Ramadi and we have this incredible task unit that's equipped as snipers, machine gunners, like, like all of us had really good patrolling skill sets in an urban environment. And if you know anything about the SEAL teams before Ramadi, we didn't do a lot of urban warfare. That's not what we do. Right. Right. And it just, our ability to, to operate in that environment was 
It was a god. It was a legitimate god thing. I feel that, and nobody can ever argue that with me, because I was there. I felt it. I know it, and it was just incredible to be able to have that, those capabilities and then be able to actually implement those capabilities at a very high level. And uh, when, you know, when we were during our, our sniper overwatches to provide security for these soldiers and sailors and Marines that were doing clearance and building combat outposts to have fortified living and fighting positions in the city for us to, to have the ability to provide security and protection for them was incredible. And then when it became real, when guys were acting within the rules of engagement, when guys were, you know, trying to maneuver on, on our guys on the streets with weapons, when they didn't mm -hmm. know we were up on a building or down, down an alleyway and, in you know, they didn't, they had no idea where we were at. And when you start being able to engage and eliminate enemy fighters, it's a phenomenal feeling because one, you know, you saved American and Iraqi soldiers, Marines and sailors, your own SEALs that are on the ground patrolling. Right. You also know that you just eliminated an evil, evil person that was trying to do horrible things. And that's one less person that's able out there to do with those things. And we started taking the fight and hunting them. We were hunting these enemy fighters. And when you get on the offense and you start hunting down evil people, it's a very satisfying thing. Well, okay. So on, on that note, so I'll give you a quote. This is from a U.S. Marine sniper, uh, Corporal Ron Spond, uh, Vietnam vet, uh, from the book One Shot, One Kill. And he said something that, it, that kind of reminded me of something I heard you say. So he said, there is this intense feeling of looking death in the face, tempting fate, challenging the reaper, so to speak. Life can never seem so real as when it faces extinction. Now your quote is, the ability to zoom in on a human being and see the whites of their eyes when they have no idea that you're watching them is unlike anything else. What, you know, if you can, you know, what is, what is that feeling like? I mean, can, can you describe it being, as you said, you're in this position where, you know, you're, you're holding uh, someone's life in your hands, you know, someone who is evil and is uh, out there uh, and up to, you know, nefarious ends and, you know, being behind the the you know the scope of of a sniper rifle in that position can can you describe what you mean by that but what is you know what is that like it's very peaceful i mean you know you have the training and the skill set to take that shot you know that without a shadow of doubt because you had trained so many times and we knew that we weren't complacent. We knew that we were doing the right thing. We knew that we were eliminating evil. And so when the opportunity presented for you to be able to, you know, zoom in, get your sights on an enemy fighter, confirm what they're doing, has a hostile intent and act, and they're trying to hurt, harm, or kill somebody else, mm -hmm. and or they're within the rules of engagement, and you manipulate the safety off that weapon, 
and you're st taking the slack out of that trigger and you're focusing on your breathing, you're focused on those crosshairs and, and you're, you're calculating your wins and your holds and you're just, you're absorbing everything. It's like everything all flows together and that gun goes off and it surprises you because that's how it should be when you're pulling that trigger with a long range rifle mm -hmm. and then you, your, your training kicks in, right? You, you know, rack that round out, you get back on the gun and then you see your work. You see that enemy fighter be shot, go to the ground, collapse. You see that happen and there's nothing. There's nothing that, there's excitement, right? But mm -hmm. we're also so highly trained and all mm -hmm. these Marines and soldiers that we're working with were so incredibly professional mm -hmm. and so highly trained that there was nothing more than business. You were doing business. You mm -hmm. were doing your job and it's business as usual. You, you assess the situation, you, you scan the area and mm -hmm. you look for your next threat. And, you know, there's no remorse because you know that person is an evil person doing horrible things. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you saw a rabid dog that was just trying to attack a child and mm -hmm. it was being held by a rope and mm -hmm. you know that rope was breaking and it was slowly breaking and twisting apart. And you know that once that rope breaks, that dog is going to attack and maim and probably kill that child and you see that happening, and you have a gun, what are you going to feel when you shoot that dog? So whoever's listening, whatever you just said that you fit, would feel, mm -hmm. I'm willing to bet nothing, or a sense of relief that you mm -hmm. eliminated that dog from being able to hurt that innocent child, that's exactly what we would feel. I think it's an interesting perspective that, that you have, um, which is a rare perspective, uh, because, you know, a lot of operators, a, a lot of people who are in positions where, um, they're responsible for others' lives through inflicting damage to prevent, uh, to, pre to prevent death and destruction, whether it's, you know, uh, an operator in a war zone or whether it's a police officer, um, these are very kinetic uh, instances and they're, they're very brief. There's not, you know, there's very little time to think, you know, close quarter combat training. Um, it's, it's all, you know, everything is, is happening very quickly and you don't have a lot of time to set up a shot, so to speak, and to do a lot of things that a sniper has an opportunity to do. So that perspective of everything that you go through. Obviously there's instances where you don't have that time. Um, I yeah, know you there, there was times when I was patrolling the streets and I was carrying my machine gun and we got ambushed and I was walking as a point man or as rear security. Mm -hmm. And we got into gunfights in the streets and it boom, boom, boom. You have to assess everything. You know, that's where the OODA loop comes in, right? The OODA loop is a decision making right. process, observe, orient, decide, act. And this, decision-making process was designed by John Boyd, who was a fighter pilot. He developed this decision-making process to help inferior planes on paper be able to outmaneuver other planes and win in a dogfight. And one of our other instructors at Echelon Front, Dave Burke, was a fighter pilot, ran Top Gun, was at Top Gun School, and then he was the commanding officer of Top Gun. 
Mm-hmm. Phenomenal human being was this was actually with us in Ramadi in 2006 as a Marine on the ground calling in the air for air support. He gives in a phenomenal brief on the OODA loop and he breaks it down as, as a decision making process. And so that's all it is, right? As a sniper, you have at times more time to plan and pre- uh, prepare and rehearse and say, okay, hey, if they come out down that corner, it's about 300 yards. If they come out of that alleyway, that's 500 yards. Hey, I'm going to have my 400-yard dope dialed in. If they come here, I hold here. If they come here, they hold. You literally can plan and rehearse that all throughout the day. Practice, knowing most likely where people are going to come from, and you're scanning rooftops, and and people don't know that we're watching them. And so there are times that we come, boom, got them, dial in, change my dope, boom, boom, take that shot. There was also times where we had to take quick shots as snipers and that's just everything that you did at a slower pace. You just do the same thing sped up. And that's mm-hmm. what the OODA loop allows you to do because you okay. observe the environment. You orient yourself in relationship to what's happening. And then you make a decision as to what you can and can't do and what you will do. And then you act, you take action, right? And as the environment changes, your ability to decide and act can change and shift and it kind of goes back and forth before we get to act and then once we act we evaluate how it worked and then we go Mm -hmm. back into it so as a machine gunner and fighting from building to building and rooftop to rooftop and alleyway to alleyway like yeah your decision making process is a lot faster you have to be able to observe and you know take everything in but you're not able to do that if you don't actually detach from your gun Mm -hmm. and look around and that's why what we teach at Echelon Front, the third law of combat is prioritize and execute. And when we tell people what prioritize and execute means and how to actually implement it, it means that you're going to stop and assess your situation so that you can see what you're capable of doing, mm-hmm. how you're going to do it, make a plan and take action. I mean, what, what happens with problems over time? Do they get better or do they get worse if we don't address them? Right. They get worse. So you actually have to solve problems. And if I'm just blindly trying to solve all these problems at once, I'm going to fail. I'm not going to be able to do the right thing. And so you have to stop. We actually tell people, relax, look around and make a call, meaning, all right, deep breath, assess, all right, what's happening? And then you make a call for yourself as as an individual. And then also when you're in a position of leadership, it's the same thing. Your team actually needs you assessing the battlefield and making calls so that they can act based off of your leadership guidance. Yeah. So, you know, that, that is the interesting role that you had, as you said, there were times where, you know, you had, you know, sometimes you were set up in a, in, in, you know, vegged up for days watching. Right. And other times where you had to instantly react. So you, you've had both perspectives on uh, how to deal with the enemy uh, in a gunfight. Um, and I'm curious, the reason I'm asking is because, you know, that certainly uh, most operators understand, you know, that, that type of quick reaction need to be able to eliminate a threat. Mm-hmm. But to be able to watch a target for a while and decide when's the right time and understand, you know, and, and wait for the, the word that says, take the shot, and you take the shot. You know, I remember you telling a story about how a car was coming at you, uh, you know, and you had to, you had to do it. You had to um, take the driver out with a headshot. They're moving at you at incredible speed. 
and you don't have a lot of time to make that shot before they hit the building and the car blows up and your buddies die. I mean, so you, you talk about operating on tr- under tremendous pressure. So what I'm wondering is having to be involved in those different type of scenarios. Do you find that snipers have a mindset that is distinct from other operators? I mean, how would you describe the sniper mindset if there is such a thing? I mean, my initial gut reaction is say is to say yes, there is a different mindset because it's, it's a different type of work. You mm-hmm. know, you have you have to be very methodical. You have to be patient. You have to be tactical. You have to be strategic. You have to be able to be able to blend back and forth between the two. Um, you know, but it's funny. Like some of my core tendencies do not align with that. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, honestly, my core tendencies. Uh, I'm an impatient person. Okay. I, I I don't like sitting around and waiting for things to happen. I like to make things happen. And so as a sniper, you actually have to sit around and allow things to happen. You, you have to. And so, yes, I believe there is a unique skill set to being a sniper. Okay. I, I'm sorry. I know there is a unique skill set to being a sniper, but it can all be taught. It just depends okay. on how badly do you want to gain that skill set. Are you willing to put in the time and effort? Are you willing to be disciplined? And if you're willing to be disciplined with your craft, most people can can obtain whatever skill sets they want. Now, there's some natural physical limitations, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that we all naturally have. Like I'm not you know, going to ever be able to deadlift a thousand pounds, you know, like some natural, you know, some individuals are built, you know, a lot bigger, stronger, Mm -hmm. genetically gifted. They're able to do that. Cool. I won't ever be able to do that. Well, guess what? Those, that same person isn't going to be able to go for a four mile soft sand run on the beach and and at a, uh, at a seven minute mile pace, not going to happen, right? They'll die a hundred yards down that beach. Right. We all have some limitations, but when it comes to some skill sets, I believe if you truly want to do something, you can be disciplined enough to learn how to do it. Mm-hmm. And when it came time to me being a sniper, I was 100% all in dedicated to being the absolute best sniper that I could be. And I wasn't the best. I wasn't the greatest. I know that. Uh, but when I was all in, I was all in. And I was willing to outwork you. I was willing to, to do whatever I had to do to be the best within my capabilities. Mm. And a lot of people aren't willing to do that because they don't want to be that disciplined. They don't want to put in that much hard work. Yeah, I could just imagine how hard it is to, to stay in one spot for three days and not and not move. I mean, I've, I've heard some of your stories, what you had to do while you're being shelled, by the way. Um, so for someone who doesn't like waiting, around, <laughs> waiting around for things to happen, um, the discipline, uh, must be off the charts to be able to, to just grit your teeth and bear it and also have the awareness and, uh, state of mind to just continue to be, to stay frosty in those, in those environments. It's just, you know, again, I implore anyone who hasn't uh, to to listen to some of your interviews beyond this one. I, um, I mean, you, you asked my wife, I mean, she knows the deal. Like if I'm in the house for too long or if I'm doing, 
you know, I mean, it's almost, it's 9.30 my time. I've been doing Zoom trainings and calls all day long because that's what I have to do right now for business. But any opportunity mm -hmm. I had, if I didn't have to be in front of my computer and if I could take a call on my cell phone, mm -hmm. I was outside walking while doing the phone calls, taking notes in my phone, right? And then as soon as I get back, I, you know, convert it to a PDF, send it to my desktop, upload it to my laptop computer, we're all good to go. But if I don't have to be in front of this computer, I'm not, I can't do it, right? I just, I just cannot do it. And like, there's times my wife would laugh is because I'd be like, you know, in between stuff. And I would just be like, hey, do you need anything from the store? And she goes, no. And I'm like, you sure? She goes, you just need to get out of the house, right? I'm like, yeah. She's like, okay, yeah, I'll text you some stuff. That right. I, I just, boom, I just got to get out and do something. Amazing. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I have to work out every day. I have to do jujitsu. Um, I, I, I have to just be able to go. And it, it's funny we're bringing this up because I was talking with somebody else the other day about this. And I was explaining when I was in the SEAL teams, I was always like, I was never content with being by myself. Like I wasn't the guy that was like, I'm going to relax at home. Like I had to be doing something. I had to be hanging out with somebody. I had to be out at the bar and it wasn't just be out at the bar at drinking, but just around people. Cool. I'll go to the bar and mm -hmm. drink water all night mm -hmm. long just to be around people. I, I've never been content with just being by myself. And I know that's not a good thing. That's something that I'm really going to have to work on and mm -hmm. improve. Uh, but I've never been able just to be like, Hey, you know what? I'm just going to chill at home tonight. That's not who I am. I that's on. It's it, it, like, you know, if, you know, if we didn't know your backstory, there's, you know, there's, this guy's a sniper, right? <laughs> you know? Like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to raise the bullshit flag on that one. I'm sure what? someone, I'm sure someone, and, and people do. It's funny. Like you get these internet warriors that will say, oh, he wasn't a Navy SEAL. He wasn't, he didn't do this. It's like, I don't care what you think I did or didn't do. I know what I did. And the cool thing about what we do at Echelon Front is we're pretty actually reserved with what we share mm -hmm. on we do and what we have done because mm -hmm. we don't want to be those guys that are like right. sharing everything there's a lot that we've all done that people will never hear about because there is some sort of our background and our past that needs to stay that way right um you know and that's just something that we all respect but yeah it, it's it's a skill set that you can obtain if you really want that clearly Clearly. I mean, this is, I, I think you're, you're the prime example for that. Um, <laughs> you're not the I mean, first it, person to say that brother. <laughs> um, so, okay. So, so your first deployment to Iraq was not what you were hoping for. Um, you, you deployed initially uh, to run protection detail for top dignitaries or something like that. Yeah. We were run security for the top dignitaries uh, of elected Iraqi officials during the elections to keep them safe. Uh, and man, I had a, whew, I had a bad, bad attitude about that initially, uh, because I mean, yeah, buddies in, in other platoons that are doing capture kill missions, they're blown open doors or getting in gunfights. They're doing snatch and grabs or grabbing bad guys out of their bed in the middle of the night. They're taking them back to base, handing them over to the authorities, gaining Intel, going and doing another mission. So you hear about these guys doing these missions that you train to do, right? And then now all of a sudden it's like, we're going to go play bodyguard, basically babysitting of adults, man, wow. not cool. But that just shows my immaturity at the time, because if I would have been older and more mature 
and detached from my emotions, mm-hmm. I would have known to ask better questions as to, okay, hey, this is what we need to be doing. Why? Why are we doing this mission? I, I want to know why we're doing it so that I can have the best abilities to execute at a high level. And if I would have understood the why and the driving force as to what we're doing and why, I would have had a better understanding as to how important our mission was to the overall picture of gotcha. what we were doing overseas. And once some of the old guys in the platoon educated me after a uh, uh, off the line conversation, I'm going to say that, <laughs> they uh, tuned up my attitude real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was humbling for me to, to understand that or to have the reality that I didn't fully understand what I was doing. And therefore I was actually not doing a good job. And I've always had a sense of pride in doing the right thing and working hard and doing the job at the highest level. And when I recognized that I wasn't doing it, it was very humbling. And then I understood, Hey, you know, this isn't about what I want to do. It's about what's needed of me and my team. And once I was able to get on board with that, I had a little reality check. Um, I feel like I finished that deployment on, on good notes. I, I learned a lot. And obviously, I mean, I had to have because when we came back, you know, they selected me to go to sniper school and, you know, I went to another school and, you know, I was put in positions of potential leadership during the workup that I didn't even know that my leadership had put me in, mm. so that they could evaluate me to prepare me for our deployment. Yeah. So, so on that note, I'll quote you because now we now we we start getting to to that part of your career. Um, you say that I remember hearing that things were starting to get bad overseas. This is after you've come back from your first deployment. Yeah. And you say that we started to hear the term insurgency being thrown around. And that's when we met Jocko Willink. That's when Jocko came in as our task unit commander. And I remember finding out that we were heading over to Ramadi Mm -hmm. and we were fired up. We knew it was a bad area. And that's the thing I love about the SEAL teams. You want to go to the absolute worst place. You want to deploy to those bad areas. And Ramadi was the deployment that we wanted. It's a deployment that SEALs want. It was sustained urban combat. It was the absolute worst area in the world at that time. So JP, what was it about knowing that you were going to the most violent, the most chaotic, the most dangerous city on the planet that drove your enthusiasm? What inspired you so much about heading to such a dangerous place? It goes back to what I kind of started at the beginning about evil exists we understood that evil existed. You know, Operation Red Wing had happened, Mm -hmm. the the whole Lone Survivor, Marcus Luttrell ordeal. I mean, there was videos on YouTube of our teammates, other SEALs, gear being going, being like rucks, like being rummaged through on those hillsides in Afghanistan from terrorists. And so to see that, we were doing our workup, trying to prepare ourselves for war. 
knowing that evil exists, knowing that evil was doing horrible and horrific things. And to know that your task unit had prepared themselves well enough to be selected to go there was just a sense of honor. Because if we didn't go, somebody was going to go. Somebody mm. had to go there. There wasn't an option. It wasn't like a, well, we might go there. Somebody might go there. No, somebody was going to deploy there. There were soldiers and Marines being wounded and killed every single day in Ramadi. And to know that we were going to go fight alongside them, to learn from them, to support them, was an honorable thing. It was an honorable mission. And why would you not want to be a part of that? If you're in my, if you're in my shoes, right? And there's some people that are listening that are like, I want nothing to do with that. That's okay. Mm -hmm. You're not also a Navy SEAL. You didn't <laughs> want to be a Navy SEAL ever since you were a little kid. Right. You had no desires to be a sniper. That's okay. It doesn't mean that you're a bad person. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. But you can't compare that desire to do that if you're not in the position that we were in. You know, there are, there are people that have phenomenal jobs and careers that they're very good at, but I legitimately have no desire to do right. because that skill set isn't something that makes sense to me. And so I knew that myself and every member of Task Unit Bruiser were built to be warriors. And we were trained and we were equipped and we trusted. This is the most important thing. We trusted our leadership and we knew whatever they asked us to do, it was for a reason. And we knew that we were trained and equipped to go execute whatever was needed of us. And so there is a sense of confidence that comes with that, that is unmatched. Mm. So, okay. So you're, you're heading over to exactly the one place you, you know, you, 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 this is where you were destined to go yes. in a sense, yep. right? Um, and you say, when I first met Jocko Willink, our task commander, he comes up to me and he says, JP, I heard you did well in sniper school. Being a sniper is an incredibly difficult job, but it is incredibly important to what we do that you own everything that affects your job as a sniper. You have to own everything that affects your job as a point man. You need to take extreme ownership of everything that affects your mission in this task unit because you will have to make the call to take the hard shot. And everything is going to be relying on you taking the right proper shot at the right proper time. I hope you understand how important your job is. Okay, so... You know, that's, you know, that's, that's a, that's a heavy duty, um, you know, assignment at that point, you know, someone giving you, but, but what I'm, what I'm, what I'm wondering is ownership, you know, what Jocko's talking about there for the uninitiated, what is he asking of you when he says he wants you to take extreme ownership? What is this concept of extreme ownership? So he talked to us as a task unit and you know, laid out the standards that we weren't gonna make excuses, we weren't gonna cast blame, we weren't gonna blame the instructors, we weren't gonna blame the support staff at the command for us not getting the gear that we needed, not getting the training that we needed. It was nobody else's responsibility except for ours 
to receive the training and the gear and the support that we needed. Because it means that if we ask somebody for support and help and or gear and they didn't get it to us, it means that we failed to communicate to them why it was critical to our success in the mission. And it was just a shift of a mindset of instead of just the normal mindset of people casting blame and, and shifting responsibilities, we were going to own that. And then when he pulled me aside as an individual and had that conversation with me, and then we were doing a run out in the desert and he said, Hey, when we get back from this run, I need you to put JP in big, bold letters and tape on your helmet so that I always know where you're at. That gave me a sense of pride. And he said, the reason why I had to do that was so that he could always know where I was at so that I could be his go-to guy to solve problems. And he said, hey, man, if I need to know where you're at, if there's a problem, if there's a door that I see that's open and I need you to direct the guys the right way, I, I need to know where you're at. So if I see JP on your helmet, I'm going to grab you. I'm going to tell you what to do. And you're going to go make the guys do it. You're, you're driven. You're motivated. The guys listen to you. Nobody cares that you're the youngest guy. Nobody cares that you're the most junior ranking guy. I need you to step up and lead. I need you to take ownership. I need you to actually be more aggressive and lead and help Seth and these guys. And when he had that conversation with me, it was very empowering. He gave belief into me. He gave me responsibility and he gave me ownership. And when you take ownership of something, you understand that it is your responsibility. And therefore, when you know something is your responsibility, you don't make excuses. And when something happens, you solve the problem to accomplish your mission. And Jocko is very smart. By him doing that to me and all the other guys, we were more likely to solve our problems on our own to accomplish a job than we were to go back to the bosses and say, hey, uh, can't do what you just asked me to do. Because when I had ownership and a plan, guess what? I wanted that plan to work. I didn't mm. want to go back and be like, hey, this didn't work. Hey, my plan didn't work, boss. No, nobody wants to do that. <laughs> right. Right, 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 right. Um, okay. So, so you're, you know, and I know you were being humble about being, you know, your, your skills as a sniper, but the reality is you become the lead sniper for Delta platoon in seal team three task unit bruiser. I mean, you were, I mean, you were Chris Kyle's counterpart. So yep. Chris, Chris Kyle, Navy seal sniper, whose story was memorialized in the book, American sniper, uh, that he wrote and the Clint Eastwood film of the same name. Right. So Chris Kyle is the lead sniper for Charlie platoon. Yep. Your Chris is opposite in, in Delta platoon. Yes, sir. So, I mean, um, it seems like so many exceptional operators were forged in task unit bruiser. So, you know, and you, you mentioned it earlier, you said, you know, well, there was a lot that was special about task unit bruiser. So what I'll ask you, what was the culture like there? Because from everything I've heard and read, there was a very distinctive attitude and culture in your unit. Can you describe it a little bit for us? Yeah, and I think that stemmed from that first interaction that we had with Jocko when he told us the truth about what we were up against. You know, leaders make the mistake of lying to their team and trying to protect them and hide the truth from them when they mm -hmm. know things are bad. Right. Jocko did the opposite. He sat us down and said, hey, guys, this is what we're up against. This is what the battlefield is like. Here's the reality of what's happening overseas. And in order for us to be able to be successful and combat that and win, 
We're going to have to take ownership. You know, we're going to have to blah, 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 blah. And so the mindset of extreme ownership is what made the difference in task unit bruiser because all the other task units had phenomenal seals, phenomenal individuals, but they didn't have the leadership that we had. Gotcha. There was a lot of fighting and bickering. So the leadership of task unit bruiser made all the difference. Jocko, Leif, and Seth. It was Jocko, Leif, and Seth that made the difference for task unit bruiser. Their attitudes were contagious and wow. we had great leadership. We believed in our mission. We believed in our capabilities and we knew what and why we were doing it. And when Jocko came in and renamed us, we were Task Unit Bravo at first. Mm -hmm. And he said, we are no longer Task Unit Bravo. We are Task Unit Bruiser. It just changed our mindset. And we had a sense of pride of being in Task Unit Bruiser because of our leadership. So leadership makes a difference, again, in every organization. Yeah, this is... Uh... Yeah, this is this is just really, really powerful stuff. And I, you know, I could just imagine at Echelon Front, we'll talk about Echelon Front soon um, as well, because, you know, what you what Jocko and Leif were doing and Seth uh, were doing uh, for uh, Task Unit Bravo, which became Bruiser. Um, you guys are now doing for for organizations, but I, I want to hold off on that for a moment because I want to get to Ramadi now. Be, you know, Ramadi at the time, again, most dangerous uh, neighborhood in the world. Yep. Um, and you know, a quote from you is that um, you had seen reports uh, from uh, the government. Uh, we'd all seen them at the time. I think it was on the news. Uh, they were telling us that. Essentially, Ramadi was all but lost. You you mentioned that earlier yeah. that 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 was the prevailing wisdom, right? Mm -hmm. and, and in fact, I I think I I think I heard you say uh, a quote from a from Marine Corps intelligence officer that got leaked to the press that read the social and political situation has the, I think you said this um, yeah. has deteriorated right has deteriorated yeah. right deteriorated to a point that U.S. and Iraqi troops are no longer capable of militarily defeating the insurgency in Al-Anbar province. <laughs> so, so you're, that's, you're going into Ramadi and they're telling you, hey guys, um, all hope's lost. Uh, we cannot defeat the enemy in Al-Anbar province. So you know, how did you and the rest of the unit view the mission you were faced with given the, those uh, dire prognostications of just about everyone that all hope was lost in Ramadi and that the insurgency couldn't be won. I mean, I can't imagine. I, I mean, w I guess from your perspective, what's it like knowing, hey, you know, our leadership and, and the word, word it, not your leadership and tells you, but, but the wisdom is it's a done deal there, man. It's a write off. Well, I mean, that's something that you have to be careful fully buying into and feeding into. And, um, you know, was it a reality? Kind of. But, you know, you have to understand that situations are constantly evolving and changing. And mm -hmm. until you're on the ground and you're in the fight, whatever you're being told is not always going to be the exact case unless it's coming from those that are specifically there. And a lot of these reports were coming from the units that were there, but there's a little bit of miscommunication and it's being transferred, transferred, transferred. Okay. But at the end of the day, it didn't matter. Like I said earlier, we trusted in our leadership. 
And we knew that our leadership and our training had prepared us to go do whatever we needed to do. So, so you're going in there and, you know, the, the, the prevailing theme is that all hope is lost. Yep. And is that, I mean, is that fueling you guys to, to prove everyone wrong? Is that? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. When you find when you hear that something is like that bad, uh, you're just like, okay, check, like challenge accepted type of a deal. So, so, okay. Because, okay. So here, here's a quote. You say that the task unit commander that we were replacing in Ramadi told us, right? Yeah. yeah. If you guys go into this area because the Marine Corps tried to push down this particular area, this road, and in 500 yards, they hit 13 different IEDs. Do not go into this area because you will get all of your guys wounded or killed. Yeah. And, and you said that we sat there and said, okay, that's exactly where we're going to go. So, yeah, and, uh, you know, and our leadership didn't say that because they wanted anybody to be wounded or killed. Our leadership did that because they were able to evaluate what was going on and assess our capabilities, assess the units that we were going to be working with and understand that they were going to be going into there and they were going to be doing these clearances. There was something we could do to help. So many times people look at something and blindly just go, oh, I can't do anything. Oh, it's so bad. It's already lost. There's no point in me actually trying to fix anything. And our leadership was like, no, we're going to fix this. We're going to solve a problem. We're going to, we're going to get to work. And that's why we decided that's exactly where we were going to go. I mean, that's so interesting because you have one task unit commander, right? That's saying like, no, don't go there. And you guys are coming in fresh, you know, all hopes lost here. Um, no, that's ex actually, we have a completely different outlook. That's, that's exactly where we're going. Mm -hmm. um, so again, the unique, um, the unique culture, the unique mindset, the unique leadership of uh, Task Unit Bruiser. Um, so something else about uh, Bruiser, Task Unit Bruiser, is that you guys spray painted the comic book Vigilante Hero, the Punisher's logo on your armor, yep. on, on your helmets, uh, on your vehicles. How, how did that start? How did that start? And, and what did it represent for you guys? Somebody in Charlie platoon started that. I don't remember exactly who it was. Right. I think, I think I know who it is, but they're still active. So I'm not going to say their name anyways. Okay. Um, but yeah, it was guys in Charlie platoon that really adapted that. And then we started doing that as a task unit and it was just, I don't know. It was just a sign of, you know, us combating evil and standing up for the innocent and the weak. I don't, you know, it was just, it's something we did. And it just, it was our, like our badge of honor, you know, it was our task unit symbol. I mean, we were tasking a bruiser again, we had a sense of pride that was unmatched. Clearly. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's clear. That's something that I've uh, you know, I, I've always wanted to ask. And I know a lot of people are curious you know, they see it in the film, American Sniper, you, yeah. you see patches, you see it on, on your, uh, you know, on your helmets on your body armor. Um, I think, um, one of the guys, the last Punisher, right. Mm -hmm. There's a book by one of your guys, right. Uh, is that lax? I think, uh, uh, Kevin Lace. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, there's a mystique, certainly a mystique about uh, your unit. Um, so you talk about the cost paid for winning the Battle of Ramadi. Yeah. Over 500 soldiers, uh, sailors, Marines were wounded. Uh, 98 were killed, including some of your brothers, mm-hmm. uh, Mark Lee, uh, Mike Mansoor, Ryan Job, uh, from complications due to surgeries later on, I think. Yeah. Also, your, you know, Seth Stone passed away later on as well in an accident. Yeah. So a lot of darkness, a lot of guilt, a lot of anger. Um, you survived. Uh, so there's a lot, I'm sure, that comes with that. But you also talk about the positives, the lessons that were learned that you get to share with others to make a difference going forward. How do you how do you process and deal with the memories of those you've lost? And what are some of those lessons that you get to share now based on those sacrifices? Well, your timing is awesome because this is great, you know, as we kind of wrap this up just to kind of, you know, and I I have a feeling we're going to do hopefully another podcast or two as we dive into more stuff. But, you know, I, I, I like that you brought this up because yes, there was a lot of anger and frustration and darkness and guilt and, you know, doubt, you know, you doubt yourself, you doubt your leadership. Um, but you can't hold on to those thoughts and those emotions because it gets you nowhere in life. You have to think about what you've actually done. You have to think about the good that was brought from that situation. And we knew that we had saved tens of thousands of lives doing what we did with those brave soldiers and Marines. Mm-hmm. We knew that beyond a shadow of a doubt. And the, you know, the, the biggest takeaways that we got from Ramadi were humility, ownership, and teamwork. You know, combat is very humbling. But combat is no different than business and life. Business and life is very humbling. You have to take ownership of your actions. You you are responsible for what you do and what you don't do. And that is so true in combat. It's so true in the military. But it is so true in everybody's life. That's what's beautiful about what we've seen and learned and experienced in combat and in training in the military, because it applies to everything. It applies to everything that people are doing, every industry across the world. And you you have to understand that you are responsible for your actions. You are responsible for what you do and what you don't do. And at the end of the day, you are responsible for your success and your team's success. There's nobody else to blame. And when you truly understand that, and everybody within your organization understands that, then teamwork naturally occurs. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who gets the credit. All that matters is that you get the job done. And in Ramadi, we didn't care who got the credit. The soldiers didn't care. The Marines didn't care. The SEALs didn't care. Nobody cared. All we cared about was winning. Mm. All we cared about was doing our job and pushing forward and, and overcoming adversity and winning an unwinnable situation. And all that is tied together through leadership. Leadership makes the difference in every organization. And when I'm talking about leadership, I'm not talking about Jocko or task unit commander or Colonel Clark in charge of all those soldiers and sailors and Marines. 
I'm talking about an individual with their ability to influence those around them to win and accomplish the goal. Your individual actions matter in every organization, in every situation. So the choice that you have is to either take ownership or to make excuses. It's either to lead or let everything fall apart. And if you take ownership of your individual actions, if you take ownership of your attitude, if you take ownership of the mindset for victory and the laws of combat that Jocko and Leif wrote about in extreme ownership, Mm -hmm. you're able to lead and you're able to lead yourself. You're able to lead your team and your organization to victory and your family to victory. This doesn't just apply to business. This applies to all of our aspects of life. So during these uncertain times, we all need to step up and lead. We all need to find ways to work with other people and make sure that we are doing everything that we are physically capable of doing to get the job done. You know, that's, um, that's profound. Um, the, to win the unwinnable battle, um, which, is, which is what you and Task Unit Bruiser did in Ramadi. You, end, you, end, you won uh in Ramadi and you restored order uh and you know now many years later obviously the costs were extremely high um as you can imagine to win something unwinnable this the sacrifice that gets made um years later uh and you know you've been very kind with your time JP I know we're coming to the end um but now you're you're back with Jocko yep. and Leif. You're 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 working with with uh, that great uh, brain trust again. Part you're part of the leadership, uh, you know, in uh, in Echelon Front, uh, and you guys are helping businesses win those you know you know those winnable battles. Uh, but also maybe the unwinnable ones. You guys are bringing a tremendous amount of experience to the fore yeah. to help. Um, so tell us a little bit about Echelon Front and and what it is you do, particularly with the organization. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Jocko and Leif started Echelon Front. It's a leadership and management consulting company. And our mission is to pass along the lessons that we learned in combat and training to individuals and organizations across the world so that you can learn how to lead, you can implement these these principles at every level within the organization and you understand why taking ownership is critical to your success. And Jocko and Leif brought me on board as an instructor four years ago, a little over mm-hmm. four years ago. Mm-hmm. And we have just been helping grow the company. I'm now a director of experiential leadership training program. So it's all of our hands-on scenario-based leadership training that we do. And that's where we take clients and we put them in stressful situations where they're doing capture kill missions against my role players. And all wow. the scenarios are driven to enforce these principles in a real time hands-on scenario to where you see the laws of combat working, you see the mindsets for victory working, you see voids of leadership, you feel voids of leadership, you see good communication, you feel bad communication, you see it all, you feel it all. And it's in these scenarios that you're able to learn how to actually lead in a stressful environment. And then we come back and we debrief these missions and we directly correlate the lessons that you learned from that mission into what you do on the professional side so that you have actionable takeaways 
to go home with, to actually, you know, in, install a plan in a place. It's not a team building event. I mean, you get naturally team building out of it, but this is hands-on leadership training. And so we've been doing that with companies for, geez, the last three plus years, uh, you know, really growing and getting some traction to the point to where now we have an individual FTX. It's like the muster, which is a two-day leadership event that right. Jack and Leif started. And we have FTX 001 that's happening this March 15th and 16th in Dallas-Fort Worth. So it's two days of scenario-based leadership training with Jocko, Leif, myself, and another EF instructor. And the group is 30 people max. Like it's a small group and it's two full days of running these scenarios and learning all the principles real time and coming up with takeaways after each mission that you're going to apply to your personal and professional life. And uh, there's nothing like it. There's no company doing what we're doing. Uh, Jocko and Leif has said the experiential leadership training that we provide is the most impactful training that we do at Echelon Front. And so I'm, I'm excited. I'm honored to be the director of that training, to be building that program out. And our first one to where small groups or individuals can sign up is this March in Dallas. So it's, uh, it's cool. We're, we're growing a lot at Echelon Front. We have EF Online, which is an online leadership training program that we have developed. Uh, we have live trainings every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday with Jocko Leif and the rest of the EF instructors. So if you have if you're an EF Online member, you have access to those three live virtual trainings every week where you get to ask Q&A, interact with the instructors. We have a, uh, a back office platform that we call the Brigade, where okay. it allows all the members to interact and work with each other and solve problems. And hey, I'm having a hard time with this. Anybody have this background? And boom, you now have hundreds of leaders you know, being able to chime in based off the principles of extreme ownership and their real-time knowledge and experience. Uh, it's phenomenal. We have um, we have programs and platforms and foundational courses that we've built out to where you, yourself and, and your team can can watch these videos, take a test, and progress along with all the material. Um, and then we have our leadership development alignment programs that Dave Burke has really developed and morphed to where it really allows us to be a consulting company based around leadership principles. Mm. Uh, that's more of our long-term engagement with clients that we have. So it's, it's really cool. It's exciting. We have a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's clear. Um, you know, I, uh, I love seeing what you guys are doing on LinkedIn. You put out a lot of content. I just started seeing you pop up on uh, LinkedIn now, putting out some, some content there as well. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of very powerful stuff, uh, out there about what you've accomplished and what you're, what you're currently getting up to. We've only touched on some of it and, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot more I'd love to delve into. So I hope you'll come on again, uh, down the road, JP. Absolutely. Uh, so, okay. Before we wrap up, where where can our audience find out more about you and about Echelon Front? Uh, easiest social media uh, on Instagram, where I kind of do most of my interactions these days. Okay. Um, Twitter and Facebook, it's at JP Donnell. So JP is in Patrick, D is in David, I-N-N-E-L-L. So that's on all platforms. Um, I believe LinkedIn is JP Donnell as well. Um, mm-hmm. and so that's kind of where we're able to interact with people. 
Uh, if someone goes to echelonfront.com, E-C-H-E-L-O-N, front, F-R-O-N-T.com, they can learn more about Draco, Leif, what we do at Echelon Front, all the instructors. You can look at the FTXs. You can sign up for an FTX. You can sign up for a muster. Um, yeah, you go to efonline.com. You can see the online training that we have. You can all check it out. I'm in the process of building out my website, jpdanell.com. So okay. maybe when people listen to this, they can just go there and it's going to direct everything to all those different little places, right? You'll be able to go find EF online. You'll be able to find the FTXs. You'll be able to find my partnership with uh, Origin and Jocko Fuel. You can order my signature energy drink from there. There's right. all these things that I'll be kind of driving through jpdanell.com. And you also do keynote speeches. Is that correct, JP? Yep. Yeah. And everything is run through Echelon Front. And so okay. everything I do, keynote speeches, workshops, seminars, long range development programs, it's all run through Echelon Front. So if that's something that you're wanting to do, um, go to echelonfront.com and uh, start from there. Yeah. I've seen some of your uh, keynotes. I've seen some of your speeches uh, and they're extremely motivational, extremely um, inspirational. Uh, that word extreme, extreme ownership, extreme inspiration. Um, but no, it's it's definitely uh, uh, fuel uh, for achievement and for accomplishment. And uh, just, uh, you know, greatly appreciate you uh, coming on the uh, on the podcast, sharing uh, your story, sharing your experience. Thank you so much for your service, man. It, you know, um, it's just, uh, I think, uh, we're lucky to have guys like you and uh, and Jocko and Leif and your and some of your fallen uh, many of your fallen brothers. Um, this country's all the better for it, and you know we can we can only hope that we continue to turn out uh, men and women that have your passion and your soul and your commitment to this country. Because without it, brother, we'll, we we would be lost. So thank you. I appreciate it. And it was my absolute honor to serve and do what I did. And I was a lucky one to have the best job in the world. And now I have the second best job in the world doing <laughs> what I get to do. So it's a, it's, a, it's a mindset that I've had ever since Buds was I get to do this. And I challenge everyone listening to adopt that same mindset. I don't care what you're doing. Somebody wishes they had the life you have right now. So remember, your worst day is somebody's dream. Amazing. Thank you, JP. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it.